I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Good evening. I'm Stuart Brand from the Long Now Foundation. Juan Enriquez is um, an inspiration to uh, a lot of people in biotech who became interested in biotech because of him, uh, who start to under, re-understand how things move around in the world in terms of national borders and things like that, books that you can see in their introduction card. And he is a person who not only talks a good talk, but he uh, invests, <laughs> he, his, he puts his money where his mouth is, and has great adventures. Uh, he has adventures, uh, I guess the one I most envy is when Craig Venter was out basically inventing metagenomics and changing all of biology by uh, finding out what kind of microbes are in the ocean and, and shotgun sequencing them and, and uh, coming up with a whole new science that transforms everything else in biology. Who else was on his sailboat? The sorcerer was Juan Enriquez. And he's here tonight. So, California, we should start in Spanish. We bring you a public service announcement. Top of the eighth, Red Sox 10, Cleveland 3. Not that anybody's counting. Stuart was kind enough to say, why don't you come give a talk? And, you know, you talk about this months ago, and he says, you know, let's come up with a fun title, Mapping the Frontiers of Knowledge. And I thought, nah, that's too arrogant. Sounds like you're going to do too much, so I tried to simplify it, and we'll just talk about mapping life. <laughs> what I'm going to try and do tonight is to try and tell you what we know about mapping life, where life is, how life is structured, where we think the edges of the known world are, and then I'm going to get into non-controversial territory like what that does to politics and religion. This is what our early maps of life look like. Right? So we really didn't understand life. We were kind of looking out of a hole. And then we crawled out of a hole and we were able to see something that looks like this. And we're still not quite sure what lives over the next ridge or the next ridge. This is a little bit like the first maps of the Americas where you get a little squiggle of the edge of Brazil and a couple of islands and there's nothing behind that. Which would be the Admiral's map, one of the first maps of the Americas. As you think about life and how life evolves and this wonderful man who's one of my heroes, this is a guy who went out and wrote and studied for decades. And after writing and working for decades, he gets a letter from an obscure island called Ternate, near the Celebs, from an absolutely obscure guy called Alfred Russell Wallace. And when he gets that letter, the letter basically has his entire theory of evolution outlined, written, and Wallace is asking whether he would submit it for publication. This is about a week after Darwin's child died. Darwin thinks about it for about three minutes and sends off the manuscript to his friends at the Royal Institute. 
with a letter that says, this guy could have taken dictation on the stuff that I've been thinking for decades. He has preempted my life work, but he got it first, he gets primacy. And he basically took 20, 30 years of life and mailed it off. And of course, his friends had been talking to him for 20 or 30 years, so they reached a compromise, and what they did is they read the Wallace and the early Darwin manuscripts together into a small seminar room where about 20 people were sleeping. And that's how you came to understand how things evolve and how things work, and how things are structured and trees of life. And these early notebooks, of course, <laughs> not always believed by everybody, led to the first trees, which started branching species. And so these are some of the first maps of life as we understood it. And, you know, there's the famous Darwin's Finches, and there's that wonderful book by Weiner, which won a Pulitzer. And it begins to give us an idea of how evolution occurs, not just in long periods, but in real time. That led to more and more complex classifications of life, and this is how we thought about life until quite recently. So there were all these nifty little taxonomists who would sit in obscure museums and dusty desks and really go out and find where in this little set of lines all this was. What the mapping of life has been doing recently is it's been blowing these things to pieces. And it's articles which I'm sure all of you have read, like this one. You know, obviously you're all interested in endosymbiotes which look absolutely obscure, but what this is telling you is that you're beginning to find whole genomes of smaller species inside larger species, like insects. And there's a series of these articles coming out. So the problem with this is, then, what is the genome or the life code of an animal? Because it used to be that you had these nice, well-structured things, but if you start to find the gene code of the thing down in the lower left in the upper right, then where does that gene code fit into that tree? And when you start finding these things transcribed again and again in these obscure things, what it does is it completely changes our understanding and map of life. And you start getting maps of life, which lets you in on a little secret. Here's the secret. This is what a tree of life begins to look like. And all of a sudden, instead of understanding life as a series of very defined trees and branches, and you know, there's a common trunk and then it goes up and everything else, you're now beginning to think of life as this circle that is constantly interchanging, exchanging, moving, modifying, and changing gene code. And that's a very different form of life because instead of thinking of life as a tree, we're beginning to think of it as a star system where the various nodes on the star are constantly exchanging data. There was a wonderful Doonesbury cartoon once upon a time that asked a creationist if he believed in evolution. And the person said, why do you ask? And he said, well, because you've got antibiotic-resistant TB, and if you don't, penicillin ain't going to work. So as we begin to understand life, if you came here today to understand the secret of life, it turns out that life is code. And it's in perfectly transmitted code, and the frontier of knowledge is beginning to understand how to map this code 
where to map this code, how this code works, how it exists, and what it does. And that's a really neat mapping project because there aren't a lot of continents left to map. But most of life is left to map out there. So Stuart and Ryan and E.O. Wilson and a series of other wonderful people are out trying to create an encyclopedia of life on the planet. And that is an absolutely worthwhile endeavor because we haven't even started to scratch this stuff. On the Sorcerer Expedition that Stuart men mentioned that Venter and a series of other pirates were on, we basically double the number of genes and proteins known on Earth simply by sailing around the world and sampling surface seawater every 200 miles. And any one of your kids can go out and do really experiments that are quite extraordinary. This answers the age-old question. Because all life turns out to be made of four little base pairs which come together in a spiral staircase. Four rungs, adenine, theanine, guanine, cytosine. And what we're beginning to do in these maps is we're beginning to try and map what this code does and how this code is structured using various fancy instruments. So this is a type of high-end laser that breaks down photons, and if you shoot it at life forms, you can break down a whole series of the images of these things. It's like a super telescope. It's quite extraordinary. It's absolutely incredible images. You can't really see it up here, but some of the things you're getting out of this material are wonderful. This is a nuclear magnetic resonance machine. You have to be really careful when you walk into this room, because if you have anything metallic, it will be drawn very fast towards these magnets. It is not a good place to walk in with a Blackberry or with a pocket full of change. But what you can do with this machine is you can take a sample of urine, you can break it down, and you can start to find peaks in different human cancers. So this becomes a high-end diagnostic machine that starts to break down the chemicals in your body in a non-invasive way. This is the more common way of understanding and mapping the frontier of life. So these gene sequencing machines can generate about 200 million letters of new gene code every 24 hours. To do that, you're looking at a layer of about eight different corridors about this size and machines that are 300,000 bucks a piece. These are some of the largest databases on the planet. They're growing faster than computers can keep up the storage of those devices. So computer storage doubles about every 18 months. This doubles about every 12 months. And there's going to be an interesting crossover point between IT and life code where we're not quite sure how to catch up. And part of the reason why that's going to happen is because at the gene sequencing meeting that took place three days ago in San Diego, a whole series of the people who make this machine showed up to show off their new toys. If you can imagine eight corridors of these machines that get substituted by one machine that looks like this, you're beginning to look at single desktop machines that'll generate about a billion letters of gene code in a single run. This is heading very quickly towards a $10,000 human genome. That means that likely as not, every baby born in the United States will come out of the hospital with a full gene code. And we'll have to start understanding what the map of his or her genome begins to mean. There were three competing machines at this particular show. 
Three weeks ago, you had the first published human diploid genome. The reason why this is an interesting adventure is because DNA replicates by splitting. So when you think of that spiral staircase, A always goes with T, C always goes with G. And when DNA replicates, it works like a zipper. So this side goes off, one direction, the other direction, gets copied, and you have two copies of the same stuff. And that's how your cells grow and are made. Because DNA replicates that way, when the first human genomes were mapped in 2001, everybody thought, if I take half the genome, 3.2 billion letters, as opposed to 6.4 billion letters, the other will simply be a mirror image. That turns out to be false. So this gentleman, Venter, sequenced his own genome. And when he sequenced his own genome, he found this stuff. This is about three weeks old. The original 2001 map is up on top, and the new genome map for the same region is down below. And it turns out that human beings are an awful lot more complicated than we thought, with an awful lot more variance than we thought. Of course, you know that because you've lived with your brother or sister. These maps are going to change the way in which we think about medicine, that we think about nutrition, that we think about why some people live long, why some people are cured and some people aren't. This code is coming at you and accumulating in an absolutely extraordinary fashion. And we're just mapping this stuff. These are the first outlines of these continents. We haven't even gotten to the point where we understand the continent as it's there yet. These are just the bare outlines of these little islands. A single gene change will mean a difference of 200-fold in body weight in the same species. So yes, which cassette you insert really does matter. And as you look at this stuff, what's really neat about it is how fast it's spreading. So this is a science children's museum in Minnesota. And you've got people working on cheek cells, and you've got people working on giant chromosomes, and the kids will isolate the chromosomes and image them. And they'll go out, and they'll start to understand particular gene sequences. And they're learning this stuff. And unfortunately, not everything is working well in this museum. You still have to post signs that look like this. <laughs> and of course, I'd argue this is probably not a sign that you should have to tell people in a children's museum. But we're entering a period where we're going to start prescribing, thinking about our own bodies in terms of our own gene code our own protein code, our own met metabolic code. This is a very, very different era. It's an era where we're going to move from a medicine which is a binary medicine, you're sick, you're not sick, take a medicine, don't take a medicine, into an era where you are handed a probability curve that tells you you're not sick, but here's your lifetime chance of getting Alzheimer's, or breast cancer, or colon cancer, or this, or that, or the other. Problem number one. Most schools don't do a very good job of teaching arithmetic. Just look at the federal deficit. Second problem, if they don't teach arithmetic, they don't teach probability. And doctors in the 15 minutes that they see you aren't going to have the time to explain probability theory to you. And even if they have the chance to explain probability theory on a specific condition like breast cancer, because you've got a BRCA1 or a BRCA2 mutation or a P53 mutation, 
they're not going to have the time to explain a phone book with 60,000 probability curves in it, which is what comes out of a single gene chip today. And oh, by the way, this information is changing every week. This is good for you. No, 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 turns out it's bad for you. This is really dangerous, but only in conjunction with these other five factors. Tune in next week, it will change. We're moving from an era of relative certainty in medicine, in nutrition, in a whole series of things into an era of probabilities, uncertainties, and constant change. And a lot of the way in which we've been teaching doctors and teaching engineers and stuff, it's going to drive that type of mental personality absolutely crazy. Right? These are people who want to know and memorize the answer in the book. And that's how they get tested, and that's how they get graded, and that's how you go through your GMATs, and that's how you go through engineering. And we're going to have to think long and hard about what we do with education, because this is a very different type of mindset. Let me move now from sort of the gene code, the absolute micro, the nanoscale, into what's happening in a similar field, a couple of chains up the ladder. So you go from gene code, ATCG, up into proteins, and then you go into the execution of the stuff in tissues, and then you get to organs. Here, too, we're beginning to enter some really interesting areas. We're beginning to map this stuff in a very different way. So this is one of the first great cartographers and map makers. South African surgeon, interesting personal life, opponent of apartheid, who went out and did the first heart transplant. The second heart transplant he did was mixed race, which in South Africa at that time was not an easy thing to do. But when he did the first heart transplant, one of the questions he went out and started asking is, did the person who received the heart fall in love with the relatives of the donor? Why would he ask a question like that? Because there was no map. You had no idea. And for 2,000 years, you've been telling people, I gave you my heart. She broke my heart. She took my heart. Da 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 da. So we thought emotion resided in the heart. I have a heartache. Of course, eventually we learned through things like this that the heart turns out to be a muscle, that you don't translate or transport emotion in a heart. And as you go forward, one of the really interesting things that's happening in this map is how many disciplines that are academic disciplines are coming together to create images of what is a muscle. This is a center in Canada, and the really interesting thing is it's combining things which in a traditional university you'd never see, but in a new university you can do it because you don't have these stovepipe departments. So it's the new universities that are putting together vascular, hearts, Biology, completely different discipline. Molecular, go down to the bottom level. Imaging, well, that's the province of radiology. And here you've got five completely different academic disciplines coming together in a single center. This is really interesting stuff, and this is the stuff that's going to make for mergers. This is the stuff that's going to make for new knowledge. Because you're going to get people with completely different ideas and disciplines and ways of looking at the world coming together to begin to understand something like the heart. One of the interesting things they're doing here is this wonderful man learned how to keep hearts alive. So this whole apparatus, the purpose of this apparatus, is to keep a tiny mouse heart alive for weeks. And it's a little disconcerting because you walk in and there's this little tiny heart that's kind of beating there. But you can now keep hearts alive outside the body. And in fact, if any of you are squeamish, you should probably close your eyes just like a roller coaster. 
but you can now start to put hearts inside machines. This is a wonderful picture from National Geographic. Let me show you what these machines do. Active in a special machine until it was ready for transplant. Now it's hoped the procedure can be repeated for all kinds of organs. The pictures of the beating heart are simply extraordinary, uh, but also graphic. Uh, health correspondent Sue Savile reports. This is how organ transplants have been achieved by keeping the donated organ in a chill box. But now this pioneering organ care system could dramatically increase the number of viable organs available, representing something of a transplant revolution. The rhythmical beat of life, but this beating heart is outside the body, artificially pumping a pulse into the organ. Not science fiction, but science fact. Doctors at Papworth and Harefield hospitals believe it could make many more organs available. We believe that using this machine and reducing the total amount of time that the heart is uh, not being supplied with blood and therefore limiting the deterioration and damage to the organ, that will one, uh, reduce the early failure rate of grafts because there is uh, a frequency at which grafts don't function well or even don't start at all. In addition, we'll be able to go further uh, to recover organs because we won't have the time clock as much of an issue. When a heart is donated, it's a race against time. Normally, the organ is removed and chilled in ice to slow down the rate at which cells die. The heart must be transplanted within four hours for the best chance of success. This means it can't always be fully medically assessed. It also limits how far the heart can be transported. But this revolutionary technique is changing that to a 12-hour time limit. Now the organ can be kept beating by a mobile heart-lung machine using the donor's blood and oxygen. It keeps the heart warm, ensuring cells are kept alive, so organs can be medically assessed and transported further. There were a hundred... Anyway, you get the general idea of this. We're going to start working on a whole series of other parts of the body. And we're going to start thinking about keeping various parts of the body alive. But this is moving pretty quickly. This week you had this announcement. So what these folks are able to do is they're able to differentiate cells, not even take heart cells, but take skin cells and begin to build a series of blood vessels out of skin cells. So when you think of how do you rebuild Oh, the veins or arteries of somebody who's been in an accident or been burned or who's eaten too many McDonald's burgers. This may be one option. This ability to understand life, to keep life alive in different parameters, to map life, to be able to differentiate life and guide life is one of the most exciting single explorations and maps and cartography going on today. A third set of cartography that is quite interesting as you start mapping life is this whole notion of who we are and what we can do. So there was a period once upon a time where you called folks like this handicapped. It is hard to do that these days, not just for political correctness, but because these guys are running with various and sundry devices in races and they're actually running pretty fast. This particular character is interesting. He holds the world record in the uh, 400 meters in the Special Olympics. 
he's now gotten to the point where he is within about half a, point, half a second of qualifying for the Olympics with no adjective. Not the Special Olympics. And he's creating a hell of a quandary for the IOC, for the International Olympic Committee, because he's asking to run against able-bodied runners. And it turns out that maybe this year, maybe in two years, maybe in five years, folks like this are going to beat folks who are born with quote-unquote normal legs. This is also moving forward into a whole series of different parts of the body. So, it used to be that when you were partially deaf, you'd have one of these massive speakers that would look like an RCA phonograph coming out. You'd kind of listen through that. And then you got these clunky machines that never worked. And then you got these tiny discrete machines that went behind your eyeglasses. And now you've got these little tiny machines that you can't see almost at all. But even people who are profoundly deaf are beginning to have machines which are implanted into their bodies. And what we're seeing here is a transmitter and a receiver stimulator over here, a speech processor over here, and a whole electrode array over here. And these things, in its first iteration, allow people to begin to hear primitive sounds. And about 18 months later, you can hear better. And about 18 months later, you can hear better. And it takes you about a few hundred thousand years to evolve to a higher plane of hearing. It takes this stuff about 18 months. And at some point, these folks are going to be able to hear stuff in tones that you can't hear. They will have an accuracy in hearing that will go beyond yours. And you'll probably start to see discrimination suits in symphony orchestras when somebody's not hired because they have normal hearing. This, of course, is also beginning to happen with things like eyes. So as we begin to move through these primitive areas, where we start transmitting images from cameras onto chips into electrical impulses and giving sight to the partially or totally blind, again, the stuff we're doing today looks clunky and kludgy. But as we start mapping the frontiers of where this stuff is going, it's not inconceivable that some of these folks will have better eyesight than you or I. Here's a couple of questions. Right? I mean, part of what we've learned over the past decades since Barnard started transplanting things, and part of what this map tells you, is the soul doesn't reside in the heart, it doesn't reside in the kidney, it doesn't reside in the liver, it doesn't reside in part of the stomach, it doesn't reside in the intestine. You can alter, you can change, you can swap, and the person doesn't become more soulful or less soulful. So therefore, the soul does not reside in those particular body parts. That leaves one area. And this, to my mind, is one of the most interesting areas about the study of life. As we start studying life on a molecular level, and as we start mapping life in a whole series of other ways, with photons and with magnetic resonance and the rest of this stuff, the black box still remains the brain. And it's that study of the brain in various machines, in various ways, that I think is one of the single most interesting areas 
of where things are being mapped. And again, it's this interdisciplinary thing that's going to ask a series of questions that are some of the most interesting questions sitting out there. How does life occur? Where does life occur? That's one segment of it on a micro level. But on a macro level, on a human level, on an organ level, the folks doing this kind of research, I think, are the great cartographers. And this research is taking place in buildings that look like this. This is something that very few universities could do, because it's not a startup university. This is MIT. But what MIT is doing is it's bringing together a whole series of departments, and they're not kicking and screaming to try and stay autonomous. And this new building, which ironically is right across from the new robotics center, is bringing together brain and cognitive sciences. And it's trying to map the brain from psychology and psychiatry and imaging and chemistry and neurobiology and genomics and a whole series of other things. And some of the conversations that will take place in these hallways probably won't be very relevant to venture capitalists for a while, but they will certainly be relevant to the people who are doing some of the most interesting cartography on the planet. This is part of the frontier, part of the mapping of where known life lies on a macro scale. Of course, you don't have to wait for these buildings to be built. This is something that we saw at Gadgetoff about a week and a half, two weeks ago. And the interesting thing about this particular robotic arm that DARPA is funding is that it allows a series of movements that become stronger and stronger and more and more controlled. But usually these robotic arms have used the muscles that are there to transmit the instructions to the arm. What's particularly interesting about this arm is this is using brain waves to control that arm. And we're beginning to link those waves to the control of the arm. And that is an order magnitude different from the, some of the stuff that we've been doing with the prosthetics. This is the edge of the known world in terms of transmission. Let's go back to the micro for a second as we talk about life. Here's something we found out about a month ago. Life actually does happen, and it ain't that complicated. So you have this wonderful trio of unindicted co-conspirators, Clyde Hutchinson, Hamilton Smith, and Craig Venter. Ham you probably haven't heard of. Ham is one of these gentle giants on the planet. He's one of the most wonderful human beings. He's also one of the most modest human beings. When he discovered restriction enzymes, which are ways of splitting genes, one of the things he got for that was the Nobel. He'd been so modest about what he was doing and working on that he got a call from his mother. Mom calls and says, Ham, I just heard on the radio. Somebody called Ham Smith won the Nobel. I didn't know there was a second Ham Smith at Hopkins. Okay, Mom. What these three folks have been doing is they've been trying to figure out, can we begin to operate cells as code? And the experiment that was published about a month ago in Science looks like this. And the reason why this stuff is very cool is because they took entire strands of DNA from one species, inserted it into a different cell, 
and had the second cell boot up as an entirely different species. Talk about identity theft. This is actually for real. And the fact that you now have specific recipes and cookbooks, this was presented on Monday in San Diego. Would you like to boot up another species in your kitchen? Well, here's about what it takes. And the fact that that's what it takes means that life happens, and probably life is very common. Not just here, but probably in a lot of different places. Which goes back to that little secret, life is promiscuous. And as you think about this stuff, what you're looking at in those two blue cells with a different identity, with a different species, is probably in terms of economic power going forward, of economic change, something similar to this little gizmo, which was the first transistor. As all of you know here, the reason why Silicon Valley exists is because this particular man had a sick mother, moved back to take care of her, and he was so unpleasant that nobody wanted to work with him for very long. So you had all these startup garages working in different places because everybody kind of got sick of them and went out and did their own thing and built out the whole electronics industry. This is what the first life transistor looks like. Brand new, nobody's quite sure what you're going to do with it. Like this one, not terribly elegant. But boy, is that going to make a difference in the world. If you start to think of the cell as hardware, and gene code as software, then you can start programming cells for specific purposes. The first thing that you're going to start seeing is changes in places like the energy markets. Why the energy markets? Well, it's a simple area. It's easy to understand. You can containerize the stuff. You don't have to put it out in the environment. But you can do things like start transforming coal. All hydrocarbons are basically concentrated sunlight. Right? So you put out a whole bunch of solar panels called leaves, or you put out mats of bacteria that absorb the sun. They concentrate the power of the sun to power the plant. Eventually they die, they rot under pressure for millions of years. And you spend a lot of money putting pipes into the ground to bring the stuff up. Then you put in another pipeline. You cross several countries. You go into a huge refinery and you go through a primary, secondary, and tertiary petrochemical process. And out comes gas, or out comes gasoline, or out comes polyester, or various chemicals. We're now learning to short-circuit this stuff. And that will make a difference. It will make a difference because we will able, be able, among other things, eventually, to get energy out of plants. We already do that. It's called ethanol but the conversion ratio is awful. It may not even be one-to-one. -one. But in the measure that we begin to understand how life forms can make energy, because most life forms on this planet haven't evolved so that human beings can have more energy, not surprising, we're going to start doing the same thing that we do with our pets, with bacteria. See, a house pet is a domesticated parasite. Right? You try leaving your little pet out there somewhere in an African jungle and see what happens. You have to walk it every day, you have to feed it every day, you have to pet it every day, 
It's evolved to have an interaction with human beings. Same thing with corn. Same thing's going to start happening with energy and things like bacteria. We're going to start domesticating bacteria to process stuff inside enclosed reactors to produce energy in a far more clean and efficient manner. This is just the beginning stage of being able to program life. Eventually we'll reach medicine, eventually we'll reach a whole series of other things, but we're many years away from that. That's the frontier and that's the map of life. So that's where life is heading. As life heads in this direction, as the cartographers discover these new continents, discovery, of course, has a series of consequences. Because nations rise and fall based on this stuff. So it's not just life that's evolving, it's also power that's evolving. And as you think of power, traditional power was based on things like this. Got soldiers, got weapons, you be powerful. Other sources of power, well, you could have God on your side. Or you could have really big governments on your side. But how you're powerful and why you're powerful today is changing in a fundamental way. And as you think about power today, think about how the old great empires were built. Just before the Industrial Revolution, India and China were about 40% of the global economy. Until recently, they were about 3.4%. What happened to these great empires that were able to build these absolutely wonderful palaces of marble? Well, technology and business passed them by. They focused on living in the harems, they focused on the beauty of poetry, they focused on the beauty of literature, they focused on the beauty of history, of all their accomplishments, but they quit building, they quit educating, they quit making new stuff, they quit learning new stuff. They were so focused on celebrating the pleasure of today and the glory of the past that their kids ended up indolent, not terribly smart, and the world passed them by. And this architecture, over the course of a relatively short period of time, turned into this architecture, which is, of course, the architecture of a different empire. Because this little obscure island on the edge of Europe did focus on learning, did focus on technology, and took over about 11 million square miles of the world. You learn, you don't learn. You get these waves of technology, you don't get these waves of technology. It actually makes a difference in terms of whether your country survives, whether your country's sovereign. The really interesting question to my mind isn't how did India lose its independence and sovereignty. The really interesting question to my mind these days is how can a society that looks like this today, that has politics that makes American politics look simple, end up with a 10% growth rate? on a consistent basis. And of course, the answer to part of that is in buildings like this. This is what power looks like today. India doesn't have a huge army. India's got a politics that is just messed up. It has very little infrastructure. But this particular building right here and this particular building are part of the core of why India is powerful. This is the Bangalore India Institute of Technology. And what these guys have done is they've been able to educate the next generation to the point where they are now the second largest software provider in the world. And the impact of this originally is in places like this where 40% of the CEOs in Silicon Valley are of Indian and Chinese descent. Building a GDP is larger than India's. But as you go forward, this is where it really makes a difference.
Because it's not just the elite that are going to these schools. It's not just the 6,000 that are on that campus. It's the kids in the street. And the kids in the street are carrying little computers on their motorcycle. And the stuff they admire, the stuff they like, they don't have logos of sports teams on their helmets. These guys have computer associates on their helmets. And when you get a society that's learning this quickly and educating kids this quickly, when you land at the airport and you see education loans everywhere, you see the kids taking drugs, but they're drugs to improve their memory, not to lose it. And you start to see these little shops that look like third world shops, but instead of selling knickknacks and falafels and the rest of the stuff, they've got the IBM distributorship. And right next to the IBM distributorship, you've got the cable company, the infotech company, the placement company, the laptop company, all stacked one on the other, all dreaming of entering this digital world, all educating their kids to do this on MIT's online courses. Let me contrast that with what happened with the people who first colonized India. So one of the first colonies in India is Goa, the Portuguese go out and colonize it, and then they keep going, and they eventually get to China. And in Macau, you start getting these strange mixtures of Chinese and Portuguese on all the buildings. But these were folks who thought, you know, the natives are pretty stupid. We shouldn't teach them anything. We should just exploit them. So we'll focus on prostitution. We'll focus on gambling. We'll focus on staying up above. We won't bother to learn Chinese. And as a result, the most famous buildings are buildings that are built on exploitation. This is one of the great monasteries. This is where Vasco da Gama is buried. Wonderful statues of Vasco da Gama. Went out, went around Africa, opened the road to the Pacific. I'm sorry, to Asia. But because he didn't bother to, and the Portuguese didn't bother to deal with the natives or educate the natives, this is the single most famous building in Macau. It is an empty facade. And of course, you could see billboards like this. <laughs> when you go to Portugal today, it's a little worn down. Now think about that for one second. If these folks had bothered to deal with Hindi languages, to learn Chinese, to train people, to have the kids of the Portuguese elite learn these languages, establish trade relationships, have a good relationship with the people that they were conquering, colonizing, teaching, missionarying. What might have been the consequences? Well, this little tiny state would have been the entrance for Chinese and Indian goods and the bridge into Europe. Much as Spain, which has been one of the most successful models, has recently learned to be a bridge to Latin America. But these folks never bothered to learn how to speak Chinese or Indian, Hindi. Go to Portugal today. Walk through the streets. These are folks who colonized China and India for centuries. Find me a Chinese restaurant. Find me an Indian restaurant. Hard to find. Very different from London, very different from Paris 
where everybody goes around an Egyptian obelisk, where you go into one of the great museums of the world, and it's full of cultures of other things, and they're absorbing those cultures. Here's an example of what would have happened. You've got a river coming down, the Pearl River. On one bank, you've got Macau, and right across from Macau, right on the other side of the river, there'd be Hong Kong. The Brits were not perfect colonizers by any means, but they did establish a civil service, they did establish schools, they did establish a, a whole series of ways of coming up through that system. And because of that, there's an absolutely extraordinary trade that went on between Britain and continues to go on between Britain and parts of Asia. Not always easy, not always pleasant, but the difference between the buildings in Macau and these buildings is quite significant. And this is what that little experiment led to. It really matters how you treat those who seem, at this point, dumb or dispossessed, or ignorant, or poor. When I was in college, you know, there were words like high-tech, there were words like hard work, there were words like innovation, there were words like great universities, and those did not usually apply to Ireland. But of course today, the Irish have a higher income per capita than do the Brits, and are doing an absolutely extraordinary job in real estate, in education, in high technology, in bridging the road to the Americas, while Britain's still trying to figure out what went wrong. This is what power looks like in the US today. It's not the Washington monuments. It's not these huge obelisks. It's not the old or the new memorials. It's things that look like this. This is Jefferson High School. I went to this about three weeks ago in Virginia. This is what the hallways look like. Nothing special about this place. They allow the kids to paint the roof, the tiles except that all the backpacks are on top of the lockers. They don't have to be locked up. Because every kid who's here wants to be here. Because one out of six kids gets picked for this school, public school. Here are the kinds of projects these kids are working on as juniors. Here are some of the textbooks they're looking at. They're not textbooks because they're on the edge and they're simply putting in the articles as they come out. This is one of the most extraordinary teachers who teaches at this place. He and the principal of this place, Evan Glazier, have generated more of what we used to call Westinghouse scholars and are now Intel scholars than any school in the US. Kids are writing from six different counties of Virginia every day to come to this place. They've got a prototype shop. They've got a placement agent that makes any school green with envy. They have a list of where all their kids go. And these are the kids who are going to MIT and Caltech and Harvard and Yale and Princeton and Stanford and UVA and Duke and the rest of these places. And when you walk outside, you see something that you very rarely see in a high school in the US. It turns out that we're all state champs in debate and swimming and diving and indoor track and cross country. Oh, and by the way, right alongside those sports, here's the academic championships. This is a school that's treating academia in the same way as Texas high schools treats Friday night football. 
You can hire coaches, you can fire coaches, you reward excellence, you have two-a-day practices, you don't show up, you leave, you're there because you want to. And if other high schools in the U.S. start treating academics in the same way as many schools treat football, this will continue to be a more powerful country. But when you take this line out of high schools, you can get into trouble very, very quickly. Right? When those kids graduate from high schools, they're not going to work in buildings that look like the Hong Kong buildings. They don't go to work for the Fortune 500 for the most part. Oh, and by the way, the Fortune 500 has generated no net new jobs in the past few decades in the U.S. The new jobs come out of places that look like this. And you drive by, and you kind of say, well, you know, that's a lousy little building. This is some of the most expensive real estate, as all of you know, in the United States. This is Sand Hill Road. So this is where you're incubating an awful lot of the companies that we're talking about in life sciences or that keep hearts alive or that do microchips or that do this, that, or the other. And it's that basic input of brains, either imported or generated, that makes this little engine run. Those little engines lead to computer centers like this one. This is one of the newest and largest computer centers in the U.S. This is the new Howard Hughes facility in Genelia Farms in Maryland. And this is one of the centers where life is going to be mapped, studied, and structured. And it's bringing together the IT world with the life science world in absolutely extraordinary buildings. This has a full hotel. It's got a lake right here. Your hotel room looks out right on the lake. You've got a supercomputer facility, and it'll fund you generously as long as you're a Howard Hughes Scholar. Largest structural glass building in the world. Absolutely extraordinary minds coming together in a few places to map life. As you think of life being mapped and as power changing, a whole series of areas of our lives are going to be changed. And sometimes I've talked about what it does to chemistry companies, or pharma companies, or biotech companies, or insurance companies, or chip companies, or manufacturing companies, or energy companies. But it even starts to change things like religion. So to be completely non-controversial, let me bring together two words that often go together, religion and evolution. <coughs> that is a fact. Right? Species go extinct and so too do religions. Do we have any proof of this? Well, this is what the Sumerian religions look like and how they evolved from being sky gods into air gods into wisdom gods into lady of wine. They were getting smarter here. <laughs> then they invented evil queen of the underworld. All kinds of things coming together. And then there were these other folks. They thought, you know, if we don't throw 20 virgins with their hearts cut off off the top of this thing, maybe the sun won't come up. You put out a thesis like that, one day the 
head priest sleeps in, the 20 virgins aren't sacrificed, the sun comes up. Oops. A little bit of dissonance between what you're saying and what happens. And of course, we've worshipped gods of death. We've worshipped gods of the sea or gods of the sky or gods of the rain or gods of whatever. The Mayans had hundreds of these gods. And here there was a common argument. This or these are the one true gods. We and we priests alone have discovered the one truth. You don't follow this truth, we will burn you. We will kill you. We will eliminate you or you will rot in hell because we and we alone know the answer. Curiously enough, recent archaeological digs have found a series of these gods, of these priests, who used to use their power to hurt people and to prove that their god was the only true god. This is what one of these archaeological digs looks like. Here's a history of what we know about single gods. Single gods were not very popular over the 150,000 years that we've been here, as far as we know, until about right here where you started getting things like Judaism and Christianity and Muslims and Protestants. Just to put this concept in a historical framework of how this stuff has evolved. But we have now discovered the truth, depending on which part of the world you're in. The interesting thing is how many of these things have common roots and evolve from common roots. So here you've got this nice fellow Abraham, who actually is really important to these three very different religions. And if you want to get a little bit closer and more personal, here is someone of the Jewish religion who gives birth to early Christianity until you've got a great schism. And then you get your first evolution between the Greek and the Russian Orthodox and the Roman Catholics. And then the Roman Catholics beget a whole series of other things like the version of Guadalupe and a whole series of different groups. And then you get this nasty fellow Luther who comes along and he evolves and begets a whole series of other things. And then, of course, a little more recently, you've got the Mormons coming out over here from somewhere. <laughs> but, of course, there's an evolution to this stuff, right? And a lot of common beliefs and a lot of common structures and a lot of common things. And the closer they are, the more they seem to fight. There's a whole series of questions that scientists, I don't think, should be answering or trying to answer at this point. Well, those questions have to do with the who and the why of the universe. But scientists are, and they're actively and quickly mapping the edges of life, the edges of the known universe, the edges of power, the edges of the body, the edges of how things are done. And when religions start to get into the questions of how and what, then they get into real trouble. Because as soon as you leave the realm of who and why and move into the how and what, you can end up with some really nasty surprises. Here's what one of these surprises looks like. All, right, all of a sudden, you have a 
universe that revolves around the Earth, and this nasty fellow comes up with a telescope, finds that the Earth actually revolves around other things, and he gets excommunicated for that fact. Fortunately, the Catholic Church knows how to recognize its mistakes. So it recognized that Galileo was right in the 1990s. But hell, who's counting? Let's just put a context on what we know about life and what we think about these things these days. Most of you have probably seen these wonderful Hubble images. right? So you have this wonderful nebulae sitting out there. The only thing that's missing from this picture is a small sense of scale. So if you take these three little columns that are sitting right here in the middle, and you take a close-up picture, say a family picture, this is what it looks like. This is a whole bunch of stardust coming together, coalescing and crunching to such an extent that you get fission. And what you're watching here is the birth of stars. These are star nurseries just giving off stars. They're just being born and sort of floating off into space. And again, you don't quite get a sense of scale. Remember, these three columns are basically right here. When you look at that, one of these columns is about 57 trillion miles high. You look at pictures like this, you look at a universe like this, and one of the things that you now know is that the universe is about 13.7 billion years old. Of course, this keeps changing. Here's one thesis on this stuff. One thesis is that the universe was created 13.7 billion years ago, Earth about 4.5 billion years ago, life about 4.4 billion years ago, humanoids about 0.06 billion years ago, and man came here about 0.00015. And the purpose of this particular machinery, of these billions of stars, of a universe that looks like this, is so that we can be at the top of the pyramid. And we are the be-all and end-all. There is no other life in the universe. There is no other purpose to the universe. There is no purpose to the billions of stars and the billions of planets, except to reach an evolution in seven days or in 13.7 billion days, depending on what you believe, to the point where we can be right about here. And that's it. Oh, and by the way, the purpose to all these other proto-humans, the Australopithecus and the Erectus and the Lucy and the this, that, and the other, was to get to what's in this room today. That is a scary thought. <laughs> but if that's not the purpose of life, and if we are not the be-all and end-all of evolution, then some of the questions that we've been talking about tonight, about how you map life, what happens with life, how does life occur, what does life do, how does life evolve, where is it going, and even how are we evolving, become really interesting and fundamental questions. And we should have the honesty to ask those questions without a whole series of prejudices of, hey, God told me, and he phoned, that da-da-da-da-da-da-da. 
I didn't write that. In closing, here would be a summary of the talk. These are what I think some of the new rules of life are, and they are incomplete, and this is a draft version, and you are the first to see this talk. So I'm happy to take comments, I'm happy to alter it. It vastly oversimplifies almost any topic you want. But hell. But some of the rules that you can get out of this would be these. It's this last point that makes this stuff so interesting. It's this last stuff that makes you all cartographers. This is a particularly interesting place to be discussing this because you're right next to the UCSF campus. Because you're right next to some of the places where some of this research is taking place. So think of yourselves of citizen, as citizens of the Renaissance. You are sitting in front of the most extraordinary intellectual discovery and banquet of knowledge, of opportunities, of ideas that anybody who has ever called himself a human has ever sat in front of. We're doubling the amount of data generated by the human species in the next five years. And all of you can do this to have cafes, to talk philosophy, to talk ethics, to build companies, to change governments, to change countries, to change education, what would you like to do with this wonderful adventure of mapping life? Because mapping life in this cartography is in its very early infancy. And this is an absolutely extraordinary period to be sitting here to be alive. It's like Christmas every morning. You get your new science magazines, you get your new articles, you get new books by some of the folks in this room like Stuart and Kevin Kelly. And it just fills you with joy. You know, it's just wonderful. Because you learn stuff every day, you can build stuff every day, you don't have to bitch about stuff every day. Mapping life is going to change every aspect of our lives. It's going to change our concept of religion, of ethics, of business, and of countries. And therefore I would argue, in conclusion, that life is something that's worth mapping. And it's worth mapping well. So let me put a period on the talk. And that's the end of the story, for now anyway. Thank you. Question from Ellen. Where's Ellen? Can we get lights up a little bit in here? Um, does private ownership, patents and such things of genomes or ideas stifle innovation? And while you're at it, uh, to reconcile technological process, progress with a finite Earth. You know, there's a tyranny of unintended consequences. And throughout history, you've seen these wonderful notions of what fairness should be. And you get people who come and they argue passionately you should do something in a more fair fashion. And a few centuries ago, one of the most progressive civilizations on earth was that of the Muslim faith. Because one of the things the Quran does 
that certainly Christians weren't doing at that point is they gave women a whole series of rights. It is written into the Quran how much the wife gets, how much the daughter gets, how much the cousin gets, how much the aunt gets. Of course, men being men, they didn't get an equal share, but they got something, and that was completely different from what was happening in other places. And if we were designing a system of ownership today, we might say, that is probably better than a system that argues if you are the first out of the womb and you have a penis, you get everything. It doesn't matter if you study, it doesn't matter if you're a drunkard, it doesn't mean if you work or don't work. As long as you are the first born heir, that is male, you get it all. So for a long time, Islam flourishes, and these other backward things don't. And if any one of us was sitting here in the abstract thinking of how do you want wealth to be passed on to the next generations, the first seems like a better method. But there are unintended consequences to all this stuff. So one of the unintended consequences of what happened is when he started getting these big voyages where it took a lot of money in three years to bring the spice back or to bring the silk back or stuff. In the British system, if one of your 20 partners died, you had 20 partners. But in the Islamic system, if one of your partners died, all of a sudden you had another 100 partners. And then the next one died, and you had another 100 partners. It was very hard to accumulate capital, to maintain corporations, to maintain a whole series of things, and the British system, absolutely inequitable as it was, built up a completely different economy while the other one collapsed. Patents in things like life are a complicated road to walk. There are people who are passionate saying no or yes. Take the example of Canada. There are a few countries and people who are as nice as Canadians, as long as you're not playing hockey. And one of the things they did is they went out and they said, we shouldn't patent life. Well, that makes a great deal of sense. Now, the only problem is this wonderful guy at Harvard called Phil Leder had built something called a Harvard mouse. And he patented the Harvard mouse. Why would you patent a mouse? Because it's a mouse that's built for a specific purpose to make replicable types of experiments, and it's easy for that mouse to get cancer. If you want to test new cancer drugs, you want mice that have the same type of genes to see if this thing works or doesn't work. And you don't want to wait 20 years for this thing to get cancer. Because Canada didn't patent this stuff, one of the things that happened is very few companies chose to do basic life science research in Canada. So you can tell me the names of a whole bunch of Swiss pharmaceuticals, French pharmaceuticals, German pharmaceuticals, American pharmaceuticals, but it is very hard to come up with Canadian pharmaceuticals. You have to be careful in these debates. It's not often that there are good guys and bad guys. Often it's a gray, difficult area where you have to navigate and come up with compromises. Well, on that, you're talking about uh, pharma, big, small, and not happening. Uh, another domain where patents, controls, and biotechnology is in agriculture. Mm -hmm. And so you've got the Monsantos of the world and Roundup Ready uh, crops and so on that are keyed between the, the, the plants and the pesticides. But you've also got in Australia and various other places, now in Africa, increasingly open source biotech, which is basically 
working on plants that really work in South Asia, that really work in Africa, that you know, there's no particular market in the Northern Hemisphere, so Monsanto's not that interested. And they're going at it in an open source way. Now, you know very well what's happened with open source in, in computer technology. How does that map onto all this? You know, there's this nasty thing called competition. And it actually works. And I think in an ideal world, on the one hand, you do have the Microsofts, and you do have the Oracles, and you do have all these other creatures that give you blue screens of death. And you have a competing open source system. And I think as long as both of those systems are working, and as long as both of those systems are moving in parallel and pushing one another, all of us benefit. I would not want to see a world where open source is a law and the only law and the only option. And I wouldn't like to see a world that prohibits open source. That is true of computer code, and that is true of agriculture, and that is true of a whole series of other things. There are people who have extraordinary talent, and they want to apply it in different ways. Some people you know, are focused on making a buck, and some people are focused on changing their world and being cool to their friends. And good for both of them. You know, I mean, it's, it's wonderful to have that variety in an ecosystem. You don't want to dictate it in one way or dictate it in the other. There aren't black hats and white hats. Some can be a little blacker. No names. Well, I think we're talking about two different kinds of competition here. Um, there's a kind of competition in war or in sports where basically the two sides of that kind of competition become more and more like each other. They have to in order to compete. And they're, you know, they're going for that slight advantage to win in that particular game. But uh, ecology and evolution tends to work in the direction of what's called the competitive exclusion principle, where instead of going dead at the competition, uh, you figure out a whole different niche and carefully avoid competition, and that's how you survive. But it's also, in a sense, a form of competition. Is that what open source is doing in relation to you know, the patent world? Is it just finding a different niche? I hate answering questions from you. <laughs> um, you know, I think there's a mixture of stuff there. On the one hand, you look for this niche where nothing will come eat you, or nothing will come destroy you. And on the other hand, as you become more and more successful, you keep running up against these niches where things tend to wipe you out. And again, you run into this law of unintended consequences. So, you know, you go into hospital rooms and you clean them all. And the better you are at cleaning them, the likelier you are to get really sick in that hospital. So one of the places where you get really sick these days is inside the intensive care units of hospitals. Why? Because they swab everything. And of course, if 0.001% of the stuff survives, that stuff is really tough. And it's got an empty ecosystem, and it's got light, and it's got space, and it's got food, and all of a sudden, you get these antibiotic-resistant bugs that grow quickly. And the irony of some of this stuff is sometimes the better you try and do things, the unintended consequences get really complicated. As, as you talk about this open source stuff, the patent stuff doesn't get my blood boiling for the most part. The copyright stuff does. Okay, the notion that you can have a life-saving medicine, put it on patent for 19 years after you've invested hundreds of millions, I can deal with that. The notion that you change the copyright laws and put, you know, nine decades on it and go beyond the inventor's or creator's life 
because you want to keep the Disney Mouse on patent. Well, that bugs me. I think Larry Lessig is one of the smartest people working out there, and I hope that people support the stuff that he's doing with creative copyright, because that's, that's one of the places where the dissemination of knowledge on the web is going to get hurt. Well, that exercises me much more. This it's interesting. Lessig uh, figures he's uh, set the solution to that problem in motion, and he's now moving into a whole other area, which is money for uh, political uh, campaigns. There's a question from, yeah, interesting. Uh, Jonathan Pfeiffer asks, have genomics or pharmacogenomics failed to deliver on any of their promises? And if so, why? What, when things go wrong, what kind of things go wrong? How much time do you have? I mean, look, all of us were promised that, you know, I mean, remember those covers of Time magazine, the if drug when interferon started coming out, and, you know, now they've done this, and now they've cured cancer, and now they've da-da-da-da-da-da. Look. Every technology tends to get overhyped. And then after it's been overhyped, we say that didn't deliver, and then it kind of goes to sleep for a while. And there's some really smart people working on this phenomenon. Paul Sappho has been working on this on robotics. And he keeps telling me, look, focus on robots. Why? Because for centuries we thought, you know, Jetsons. And it didn't happen, so we quit focusing on robots. But now you've got an intelligence coming together with a processing capacity, coming together with a battery capacity, is going to do some really interesting stuff. And you're going to see that in technology after technology after technology, and biotech is certainly one of them, and genomics is going to be one of them, and the Human Genome Project is going to be another one. Hey, the human genome's been out there for six years. What's it done for me lately? Well, it takes 14 years to get medicine to market, and a few hundred million dollars. And that's not good. We should be thinking about that, because often we focus on stuff that's the immediate and easy to understand. This drug killed 12 people. You know what? That's just horrible. What we're going to do about that is we're going to increase the scrutiny, we're going to increase the size of the clinical test, we're going to put a couple more years on this drug coming to market, and what we're doing is we're measuring how those 12 people don't get hurt again. But we're doing the same thing the Europeans do, do, which is to put in place a precautionary principle. Prove to me this drug will not hurt people, and I'll let you sell it. Prove to me you will never beat your wife over the next 50 years, and I'll let you marry her. You would have very few drugs coming to market, and that's actually what's really happening today. You've got 25 to 35 new drugs coming to market per year since 1985. Massive amounts of investment, same number of drugs, complete collapse in productivity. So most pharma companies are now becoming marketing companies as opposed to discovery companies. And that's really scary. Let me give you an example of what this stuff means. When you put the price of a drug up, according to pharma, which I think is exaggerated, at 800 million bucks per drug that goes from trial to, to pharmacy. What you're doing is you're making it impossible for drugs that aren't going to be blockbusters to come to market. And that means you shouldn't be focusing on these 12 people who are hurt. You should focus on the 200, 300, 400,000 people who are going to die of malaria, who are going to die of TB, who are going to die of a whole series of diseases because it's not profitable to make those drugs. What do you call that principle? If it's not the precautionary principle, what's the name of that one? 
What's the name of the principle to focus on the 300,000 who might be helped versus the 12 who would be hurt? Well, I think one of the things we've got to start doing is start measuring the costs of not acting as opposed to the costs of acting. Because we're taking you know, a whole bunch of CEOs, sometimes with reason and cause and sometimes without it, into courtrooms in South Texas where there isn't a rule that says only one yacht per lawyer. Okay, so you've got these guys flying into these obscure courtrooms in G5s because it's the fifth company that they've sued the pants off. And every time they do that, what they're doing is they're increasing the cost of drugs and they're making those drug companies marketing companies. Right, when you go out and you sell a pill like Nexium, your marketing budget is larger than the marketing budget of Budweiser beer. Why? Because if you have a new but somewhat risky drug coming to market, would you rather sell that and perhaps spend the next 10 years in a courtroom, or would you rather sell the hell out of what you've already got or merge with a company? That is really damaging to the US. It's really damaging to healthcare. And I don't know what the name of the principle is, but we've got to start measuring the costs of not acting as well as the costs of acting. We're not really good at that. The pro-actionary principle. You pro heard it first from Kevin Kelly. Pro-actionary. Just go ahead and try stuff. Well, that's, that raises another question. Yeah, interesting. Um, okay, so we got pharma becoming more and more conservative. Very big. It reminds me a little bit of uh, IBM back in the mainframe days. Yep. And about that time, uh, Big Blue was uh, perceived as uh, the enemy, the limiter, the uh, hierarchical control system that only governments and huge organizations would use to step on the rest of us and all the rest of that kind of language, uh, which was then what led in part to the hackers. And the hackers led to the liberation of that technology. So are we going to see biotech hackers any day now? You know, I suspect, even though I wouldn't know, that there might be one or two hackers or ex-hackers in this room. Just a thought. Isn't that a terrible thing? Won't they uh, you know, make uh, weapons they'll give to terrorists so they'll become terrorists because it's so easy or something? Well, here's the news for you hackers who scared the hell out of your parents. <laughs> your kid's job is to scare the hell out of you. And they're going to go out and they're going to do things with life forms that you're going to walk in and kind of go, huh? And the stuff evolves. Well, what's the offshore angle here? Because in the U.S., there's all kinds of controls. Uh, but China, Chinese are relatively relaxed about uh, things that we get our, our moral knickers in a twist about. And uh, there's you know, people starting companies uh, every old which way. In India, the same thing. and other places, people catch on to this stuff pretty fast. You were just saying that uh, you know, we are coming up on basically garage biotech. Sure. So is there going to be a huge infusion of this stuff from elsewhere in the world? I, I learned a lesson with, uh, as the future catches you. When I published it, I got this email saying, what did you mean on page 37 of the Chinese edition when you argued dot, dot, dot? And I thought, I didn't know there was a Chinese edition, so I called up my publisher. <laughs> and he said, there won't be a Chinese edition for two months. And then I looked at the front page, and it said, copyright which translated into Chinese, of course, means right to copy. 
know, if the U.S. isn't really careful, a couple of things are going to happen. One is there's a, such a huge delta between what it takes to research and bring a medicine to market and what the regulatory cost burden is on that that anything underneath that burden, these guys can bring to market for 20, 40, or 60 million bucks. And that's, you know, a delta of about 820 million bucks, which is a good delta to play with as you move towards billion dollar buck or 900 million dollar things. And what could happen in life sciences and biotech and pharma, if we're not careful, is exactly what happened in computer chips and what happened in computer hardware and what happened in steel and what happened in cars, which is some of these very smart people in China and India are going to start making the stuff and they're going to underprice and they're going to bring stuff to market faster, better, cheaper. And right now it certainly doesn't look like it, but then again, in the 60s it didn't look like Japan was going to take over manufacturing. Let's go to another part of this, <clears throat> namely uh, brain science. Uh, there's a question from Ron. Please comment on the map of the psyche or mapping of the conscious and unconscious mind. What would Carl Jung or Buddha say about all this? You know, there are people in this room who are far smarter than I am who could answer that question far better than I could. I mean, one of the things that I like to do is I like to collect sort of the early books and manuscripts that come out of molecular biology. And one of the really interesting things is how this cross-pollination started taking place. So Jim Watson wanted to be an ornithologist. He was out studying birds until he read a book by a physicist called Schrodinger called What is Life? So here's a physicist talking about biology, inspiring an ornithologist to change his profession. And one of the more amusing books that I sort of picked up is a collaboration by... Delbrook and Jung writing together on these questions. And that cross-pollination doesn't take place as much anymore, but what would Buddha say and what would Jung say? I wouldn't dare answer that question. Okay, try this one from Mike. Basically, he's asking how does biotech, as it affects humans and as it affects everything else, relate to climate change? One of the really interesting things that happened during the Sorcerer Expedition is we started understanding how prevalent microbial communities are and how varied they are. So there's more variety of ecosystems sitting on the ocean surface than there is in the Amazon. About 75% of what we found every 200 miles had never been seen before. Let me put that in context. It means that if you went and sampled houses every 200 miles in the U.S., inventoried every single thing, 75% of what you'd see at the thousand house you'd never seen before. That means that there's a linear increase in the number of protein families on Earth and the number of genes on Earth. That means that about half the biomass on the planet turns out to be microbes. But there's more carbon absorption in the oceans than there is on land. That it really matters if a series of viruses are attacking some of these animals in the South Pacific. Because if they start dying off on a large scale, then that oxygen doesn't change. We are just beginning to understand the cartography of metagenomics. It's an absolutely spectacular adventure. As we begin to learn these carbon capture mechanisms, these other mechanisms, they may turn out to be just as important as some of the other stuff that we're doing or not doing. I don't know the answer, but it sure as hell fun to sail to the South Pacific to try and find out. 
Well, a big part of the climate change story is, is uh, energy. You touched on that a little bit. It sounds like this is an area you're personally putting time and investment into. You want to say a little more about biotech and energy? What you know, is BP and, and your company doing, for example? Well, I mean, think about agriculture for a second. What, what happened in agriculture for centuries is we used brute force on it. So we went out and we built bigger tractors, we built bigger harvesters, we built bigger combines, we built these huge fertilizer factories, we built herbicide factories. So it was this little plant and throw more stuff at it. Bigger combine is better than a smaller combine. Of course, in the 1960s, we started to change our chemical, mechanical approach to agriculture and started working on a biological approach, and all of a sudden, you quit having famines in China and India, and China and India became net grain exporters thanks to one of the greatest heroes on this planet, Norman Borlaug. And it's incredible that we don't recognize Norman Borlaug for having fed more people and stopped more famines than any other single human being alive. I think what's going to happen in energy is something similar. If we start thinking of energy as concentrated plants or concentrated bacterial matter that is absorbed in frozen sunlight, all of the mechanical approaches we've been using to generate energy have a bigger, deeper platform, have more of a drilling fluid, have more pressure in the well, all this brute force stuff that is really reaching its sort of top in the Alberta tar sands extraordinary operations in scale and brutality are going to start changing as we learn how to do things like fertilize oil wells or fertilize coal seams. Because see, the reason why some coal mines explode and other coal mines don't is because there's a lot of gas in this one and not in this one. And the reason there's gas is because probably there's bacteria in, in there eating frozen plant matter. And they do exactly what a kid who's eating a plate of beans does. They generate a lot of gas. And if you can take the gas out of coal without having to strip mine it, or without having to process it and burn it in the plants that are the single greatest source of single point emission for greenhouse gases, that's a good outcome as you transition into things like solar energy, as you transition into wind, as you transition into tide, all these things that are sitting out there, but you need a bridge to that. And that bridge is an ethanol. I'm very conscious of your time, but you've been here for an hour and a half. Yeah, Let me take more. one last question. All right. And I like your company's going to be bottling cootie farts. Uh, this is from Robin. You should patent that name. <laughs> uh, to be a good explorer of this territory, what should a kid in college study today? Biology? Computer science? Molecular physics? Philosophy? What? It makes absolutely no difference. Whatever you study is going to be obsolete. <laughs> right? So what does that leave? What do you do in you know, four well, years or whatever? Look, I mean, take a poor radiologist. Radiologist used to be the king of images. And what's happened over the last decade is radiologists now take 25% of the images in the hospital. Because all of a sudden, the heart people are imaging the heart stuff. Then there's these people imaging the brain. Then there's people imaging the fetus... Then there's people imaging this, that, and the other. And all of a sudden, this nice, well-defined field has 75% of people who are outside the field who are now playing. What's really wonderful about today is a Fortune 500 company used to last about 94 years as a Fortune 500 company. Now they last about 14 years. 
That means that whatever your kids study today is going to be obsolete in about a decade. And as long as they're curious, as long as they have the discipline to learn, as long as they know how to triage information, as long as they understand that they're moving from a world where there are you know, specific rules and things you've got to learn into a world where you just got to keep learning, and they consider that a great adventure, then you can have a very successful country, and you can have successful companies. And it's keeping and learning and teaching this curiosity and doing so with the same discipline that you apply to football that will make countries great and survive. Thank you all very much. Juan, muchísimas gracias. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.